Luke 21, we're going to look at verses 1 through 4. And the message is entitled, um, The Widow's Gift. It is the Tuesday after the triumphal entry to Jerusalem by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He has been confronted and attacked with all kinds of questions all day long. He has been teaching there in the temple, as you know. All of 20 gives us that. And uh, the first eight verses of 20, the chief uh, priests and the scribes question him about his authority. In 22 to 26, the Pharisees and Herodians asked him questions on taxes. Is it lawful to give taxes to Caesar? And in 27 to 38, the Sadducees questioned him about the resurrection with uh, the woman who had the seven brothers and all. And at the end of the chapter, in verse 46 to 47, Jesus warned the disciples about the scribes who love to have their public admiration, parading themselves in robes, the greetings in the marketplaces, the chief seats in the synagogues, as well as the major feasts, while all along devouring widows' houses and making pretense of long prayers. Quite an indictment. It is at this point that Jesus observed people putting money into the treasury. And our text will reveal to us three truths about our giving to God here. Let me read. And he looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw also a certain poor widow putting in two mice. And he said, truly, I say to you, that the poor widow has put in more than all. For all these out of their abundance have put in offerings for God. But she, out of her poverty, put in all the livelihood that she had. And so as Jesus reveals his observance of the people putting money in to the treasury... He reveals three truths about our giving. First, in verse 1 and 2, Jesus is the secret observer of all giving. Secondly, in verse 3, Jesus is the secret appraiser of our giving. And thirdly, in verse 4, Jesus is the secret admirer of our giving. This is such a great text. First comes... The fact that Jesus is a secret observer of all giving. Verse 1 and 2. By the way, Mark is the only parallel passage to this. There's no other record, and that's Mark 12, 41 through 44. They're the only two times it appears here in Mark. And Jesus noticed, look, uh, and he took notice of the rich making their offering in verse 1. He looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And Jesus again had just finished this whole declaration of warning against these scribes. And, um, and, and here they are, they're, they're robbing widows' houses. And, and, and yet, this was the whole environment of that day. Uh, religious hypocrisy and things that go on. But no generation escapes this. I hope you're not naive. There are always men who will uh, merchandise the people of God. Men and women who will use and abuse their position. This is, uh, whether it be in the church, whether it be in government, whether it be in homes, whatever it may be. Mark tells us Jesus was sitting opposite the treasury in Mark 12, 41. 
This was between the court of the Gentiles and the court of the women. And you have different gates there, and the gate beautiful stood nearby. And maybe Jesus was standing by this ornate um, gate with a beautiful vine on it to represent the fruitfulness that Israel was to be. And yet it had turned up wild grapes, even as Isaiah's uh, proclamation of the wild olive, uh, wild uh, vineyard. That God did everything. He couldn't have done anything more. And he was looking for a crop, and this happened. Now, in the court of the women, there were 13 collection boxes called trumpets. And this is what they're looking at. And the name comes from the very shape of the basket or receptacle in the shape of a trumpet with a wider mouth so that people can put stuff in. So sort of like if you go across a toll bridge or a pay freeway and you cast in your money in that big receptacle. Now, the various collections of the trumpets identify particular funds to where they would designate them and what they would be donating to. Jesus was um, observing and he saw the rich putting their gifts in, he says. Mark in 1241 tells us that Jesus saw how the people put in money. The how indicates the outward attitude and the manner as well as the motive of their hearts. Jesus knew the heart of every person. There was no reason or motive that escaped him. In fact, John tells us in John 2.25, And had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. You and I look at what we see and we think what we see is real and we take it as genuine based on who it is that we're observing. But even in that which we believe to be genuine may not be. We don't know the heart of man. Jesus, what he's about to say in these four verses is absolutely incredible because it's the absolute truth and nothing can be doubted. The rich Jesus was observing was no different, and they were no different than those of today, especially when you're dealing with if the religious people like the Pharisees, the Sadducees, that they had long lost a relationship with God and it was just a ritualistic formality. They loved to parade their giving. They loved to be seen. They loved to be admired, and they loved to be envied. <laughs> Some of the uh, most horrific evidence for the world to use against us comes on Christian television, the way some of this stuff is prayed. And now, with the Internet, you've got everything. You have people that misrepresent God in a very horrible way. And so the world interprets this straight across the board. But... Um, you know, when you ladies go to a party or to um, an event, um, every woman that walks in, you're looking at their dress and their shoes. You notice every little thing. And, and, and if you see some shoes or a dress that you really like, you go up and say, hey, I, that's really cute. That's not, oh, I said. But all along, you're praying that not one of those women walk in with your shoes or your dress on. Gentlemen, 
women dress for women, not for men. Our flesh loves to be seen. Our flesh loves to have the number one place. The gifts indicated the offerings here. And the word gift simply Doran and simply means something given by one's own accord. Everyone could see how much as well as the particular funds. And people try to be nonchalant on things, but we, we kind of look and see what's going on. So they can say, ooh, look how much he put in there. And, oh, he, 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 he put five funds, all 13 funds. Impressive. If you remember the, um, the request of God for the tabernacle and the building of it is that every artifact, every material, every effort of contribution, be it uh, of artsmanship or not, it was to be done willingly of a willing heart. Exodus 25, 1 and 2 and many, many other times. God never wants you to feel compelled or forced to do anything for him, ever. God always declares the importance of how we do things, the reasons and, and the motives of our hearts. And so he's seen straight through these individuals. In verse 2, Jesus then also looked and took notice of a widow making her offering. And he saw also a certain poor widow now, putting in her two mice, and Jesus looked up and saw just a certain widow, nothing, no one particular. He didn't know her. Um, and, and by the way, God made a big deal about widows in, as a priority in the Old Testament, the law. If you read Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law to the new generation, especially the a tithe for the stranger, the fathers and the widows in uh, Deuteronomy fourteen twenty eight through 29, so they would have certain provisions. Uh, there were to be uh, no perversions in terms of justice for a widow from the judicial system. The judges in Deuteronomy twenty-four seventeen and the stranger as well as the uh, um, the fatherless pledges were not to be taken from their 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 cloak or stuff like that and kept overnight. They were to be returned because it was their their covering. Um, they were not to return when they were grazing their fields and that they were not to return for sheaves that fell. But they were to leave them for the father, the stranger, as well as the widows. And also leaving the corners of their field untouched so that those three groups and others could walk in and just pick and at their own work provide their own food to give them a sense of self-respect and honor. In order to society, what, an, what a clever idea to have people work for their food. It's basic. It's better than an ATM or a cell phone that you keep charging and everything else. It destroys people. But you know, Paul also told Timothy in the New Testament in 1 Timothy 5, 3 through 16, certain requirements for widows. They had to be over 60 years of age. And he made a distinction between widows who had help from family members and widows indeed who had no one to help them. And then he gives the requirements and the prerequisites and all that. And when's the last time you heard that the New Testament church had prerequisites to help even widows? People don't touch anything. They just skim over things. 
And so we have taken the idea that Christians should give everybody everything and anything, anytime. The Bible doesn't teach that. We're to be kind, benevolent, loving. But um, we're not the world's uh, storehouse. Now, Luke tells us she was poor, and the word poor designates a pauper, um, not even a mere peasant. Uh, she did not know where her next meal would come from. Um, widows often were poor, having no husband to provide for them or protect them. And if their sons died, they would be doubly destitute for sure. And remember that Jesus raised the, um, the son who died at the widow of Nahum. He was the only provider and protector of her, and the Lord raised him up. Now, the poor widow gave two mites notice. A very small brass coin, literally a thin one, about a quarter of a cent. Insignificant. Mark says, two mites, which makes a quadrant. The old King James says a farthing. It's a Latin word, quadrant, and simply... Uh, means the same thing. There's no contradiction, about a fourth of a cent. Now, an insignificant amount in comparison to the riches of the others. There's a great contrast here. Now, Jesus just pronounced the woes. Now, Jesus didn't teach wealth distribution. Never. That's a man-made thing. Jesus doesn't teach that. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible says we're to be loving, benevolent, as I said, and we're to be hard workers to be able to help others. But there's a difference between you helping somebody and somebody coming over and saying, you need to give me some of your stuff so we can all be the same. That's a whole different matter. You remember when God sent Elijah to the widow up at Seraphat, and said that she would provide for him while he hid her, Elijah there, as Ahab and Jezebel were after him. And, um, and when he got there, the widow and her son were picking up some sticks to make a fire and to um, cook up the last handful of flour that she had and a little bit of oil. And Elijah told her that she was to make him a cake first and then for herself and her son. And that God would... Not allow the flour to cease or the oil until the day that God brought forth rain. What an incredible passage. God's faithfulness to the widow as well as to the prophet. In very, very difficult times. Matthew teaches us that we're not to do and exercise our giving to be seen of men, but to be done in secret. Matthew 6, 1 through 4 says, Take heed to that you do not do your charitable deeds before men, to be seen by them, otherwise you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do charitable deeds, do not sound a trumpet before you as a hypocrite, do it in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you that... They have the reward, but when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deeds may be in secret, and your heavenly Father that who sees in secret will reward you openly. A simple instruction that runs against our grain as human beings. 
We want people to acknowledge what we've done. We want them to feel indebted at times for what we've done. And, and that's not to be as believers. Paul told the Corinthians that God will never be a debtor to any person. In 2 Corinthians 9, 6, um, he says, But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now, this scripture can and has been and will be abused over and over again because people who are carnal try to use carnal means to motivate carnal people to get some of that carnal stuff, demonstrating that they are the most carnal of all of them. (laughs) And they stand behind pulpits. It's horrible. Paul also reminded the Corinthians that God is more concerned about our attitude and our giving than the amount we give. 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says, So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver or hilarious giver. If you can't give wherever you go to church and what God is directing to, don't pollute, pollute the offering. You want God to do a clean work. This church began from um, three people in a home Bible study in Alhambra on the Dodgal Street. We were in a cockroach-infested theater, about 500. And God said, it's too many for me to give you a building. So he dwindled us down to 300. Then he gave us this building, this location. In 1994, we were praying about putting that gym in. And um, we um, felt directed to the Lord. We stepped out. And um, there was no pleas, no begging, no letters, no telethons, no nothing. We just continued to do what I'm doing this morning, teaching you, praying and doing what God has for us. By the time the construction was done, the building was paid off completely. Now, I don't say this in any way boasting. I say this because I have to communicate it to you as your pastor for 34 years. I have seen God do the incredible. I have done absolutely nothing. I will be 65 years old this month. Why would I want to change the methodology now? Why would I think that now at this point in my life I can do a better job than God has done? And began to pressure you and to sell you sad stories and everything else. I'd be insane. What you see happen here is all of God. And I'm one of the admirers at what God has done (laughs) and all of it. Paul also gave to the Corinthians the principle of sowing and reaping based on the attitude of heart in 2 Corinthians 9.8. And God is able to make all grace abound towards you. And he uses the word grace synonymous with the giving that they were going to give. That you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. 
The word there, sufficiency, if you're with us in our study, that's a, a stoic word. That means that you live in such a way that you're a good steward, providing for yourself, for others, and always having something extra. So nobody ever has to take care of you, but you are there as a model for others. That's what the believer is to be. I've told you often that the minute we were born again, we became financially ahead. The very first weekend. You weren't out there drinking, getting drugs, and smashing your car, and getting your face smashed, and everything else, whatever else you did. Let alone now making decisions on the priorities on how you spend your money and what you buy, what you don't buy, where you go. Automatically, we're ahead. Paul is well... um, tells them when this giving was to be done. And probably was just during the Sunday morning service, even as he says in 1 Corinthians 6, 1 and 2, now concerning the collection of the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must also um, do, in the first day of the week, let each one of you lay aside uh, storing up, uh, as, as he may prosper, that uh, there may be no collection when I come. So we... we kind of do this on Sunday morning. We do it for your convenience. We do it nonchalant. We don't try to make it a burden or anything else. And then we move on to the announcements, everything else. And that's what we've done for all these years. And we don't plan on changing and anything else. It's just the way God has led us um, through the years. And I believe God honors that. Jesus is the secret observer of all giving. I don't know what you give. I don't care what you give. I don't want to know what you give. That's not my business. That's between you and God. Notice, secondly, Jesus is the secret appraiser of our giving in verse 3. So he said, Truly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all. So Jesus removes all human opinion regarding the estimation of what was being given to God. Jesus was speaking to his disciples directly, indirectly to the crowds. So he said, it says in the beginning of verse 3, Mark tells us, so he called his disciples to himself and said to them, Mark 12, 43. So he's speaking directly to his disciples. They're right there in the court. They're looking up. And the crowds are still in the backdrop, Luke 20, 45 and Mark 12, 37. So they're hearing this too, but it's directly to the apostles, disciples. Now Jesus was about to speak absolute truth with absolute authority about the offering of this poor widow. The importance of the statement is its credibility regarding the words that are to follow being prefaced by the word truly. It means reliable, sure, certain. The same word is used by the centurion at the crucifixion in Mark 15.30. Truly, this man was the Son of God. Mark uses the word assuredly. The old King James, verily, verily. It's the word amen. The word amen is pronounced the same way in every language. Amen, 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 but it's a universal word. When that word, verily, verily, assuredly, assuredly, is put in the beginning of the sentence, it pre-announces that what what is about to be said, and Jesus did it in doubles, 
that is very important and it's absolutely reliable. If you put that same word, amen, at the end of the sentence, it says, so be it, let it be done. It's affirming what has been said. So it depends the position of the word. Now, Jesus is declaring the importance of the statement here based on the priority of his person. I say to you, Jesus didn't quote nobody, prophet, rabbi, philosopher, no one. He is the highest authority. When, he, when you read, I say to you, you can trust every word he says. You don't have to question, well, you know, you have the intellectual gurus in the Christian community and the seminars and seminaries and they're deciding which really are the true words of Jesus, which are not. And they're, they're you know, amazing. Amazing. Notice Jesus removed also the hindering veil over their eyes. They only saw the physical. What, what they're seeing, Jesus is seeing something completely different. <laughs> now, they've just, my wife was telling me yesterday, and maybe some of you got wind of this, that, that now they have, you know, they have listening devices you can hear on people, you know. You can get a radio shack, different things in their houses and that. And they have drones and all that. Now they have things that you can look through walls. Are you kidding me? Do you know what people are going to be doing? So Jesus is looking up and he's seeing everything that's going on in and out. All they're seeing is what's going on on the outside. He removed the veil, literally, as he's communicating this to them. He knew that she gave from a genuine heart. She was not trying to impress the rich with her two mites. It's like if you're driving down the street and you come up to the stop sign and there's a Bentley next to you and you drive up with your Volkswagen you roll down your window and say, how do you like my short, man? Like he's going to be impressed. She knows who she is. She, she knows who they are. He knew that she gave out of love for God. She was grateful for the little she had. He knew that she gave without trying to bring attention to herself. She was probably trying to get in and get out uh, to not be seen. But she was most likely looked down upon as the rich would see her come forward. Maybe in themselves saying, what's she going to give? How is she going to affect this temple? Look at the beautiful stones, the jewels, the gold. Does she think that she had any part of this? You know how we are. <laughs> she understood God had provided her with the two mites. And she equally understood that God would continue to provide her for her, though she didn't know how. This is the greatest text of a life of faith. Wow. Notice Jesus considered the two mites of this poor widow of greater value by God's standards, has put in more than all. The comparison is between the sum total of all their offerings of the rich that they had deposited in the trumpet chests 
in contrast to her two mites. You see, man looks upon the amount. God looks upon the proportion to what we have when we give. Total different perspective. The word more simply means greater in quantity and quality. Superior and more excellent in quality by the little she had. Superior and more excellent in quantity in that she gave all. The founder and the leader of Calvary Chapel was my pastor, Pastor Chuck Smith. He died two years ago on October the 3rd, last October. From the minute I heard Chuck the first time on, I always heard him repeat his philosophy for ministry. Where God guides, he provides. And he lived it. He never begged. He never had programs. And God honored that and blessed him so that he, in fact, became a dispenser of much help to many people. He had a radio ministry around the world. He never begged on the radio. Sadly, too many Calvaries now are going the way of constant begging and selling themselves. How tragic that is. God can answer two ways. He'll let you go broke if you don't trust Him. Or worse yet, He can give you the wealth that you're begging for. That's worse. It'll consume you. It'll destroy you in the the ministry. Paul gave a simple principle. God honors in our giving that we do it of a free will and in proportion to God's blessing. Again, he's dealing with the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 because he's, ask, he's asking them about the, uh, the offer they made a year before for the poor saints of Jerusalem. That's why he gave us so many principles. And thank God he did. We wouldn't have had those. In, uh, in 2 Corinthians 8, 12 through 40, he says, For if there is first a willing mind, it is acceptable according to what one has and not according to what one does not have. For I do not... Uh, mean that others should be eased and that you burden, but by an equality that now at this time your abundance may supply their lack and their abundance also may supply your lack that there may be equality. And so he's, he's laying it out on them. I don't want any group of people, any few be the one. This is, this is a family matter. This is, there should be nobody burdened over it. Or being able to boast about it. Your giving should never be by compulsory uh, pressure. Through various methods that often are used today on the radio and over church pulpits. They will tell you that if you give to God one dollar, he will give you ten. Once again, using carnal methods to reach carnal people to get carnal money. Because they're carnal more than any other person in the church. And they're supposed to be leaders. They tell you that if you don't give, 
to the radio program, they're going to have to go off the air. Thank God, go off the air. That the church is not going to make the bills. Well, maybe you shouldn't spend more money than you get. That missions. If you're a visitor, you may think I'm arrogant and boasting. I'm just giving you the history of Calvary Chapel, Pasadena. What God has done. I have nothing to do with it. We all worship and thank God for what he's done. Because no one can figure it out. If you can write a book for the success of your ministry, God didn't do it. You did it. I've got one answer for what happened here and it continues to happen. God. Nobody wants to publish that book. It's one word. It doesn't bring in money. So the pressure of the world pressures leaders to be carnal and to sell God. They will tell you that now you can be a, a partner in their ministry. And they have various levels you can get in. You know, you can be on the gold, the silver, or the bronze. Kind of like Obamacare. And of course, you want to be in the gold, right? You'd love to be in the gold. But you look at the gold and you go, man, are you kidding me? Anytime any man suggests you an amount, get up and walk out. It's not God. Absolutely not God. Listen to Psalm 37, 25. I have been young. And now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging for bread. What an incredible passage. I'm a witness to you of this statement. Since I've been ordained in 76, I've seen this principle work. Can't explain it. God is faithful. Jesus is the secret appraiser of our giving. He alone, no one else. Notice thirdly, in verse 4. Jesus is the secret admirer of our giving. This is great. Jesus knew that all the offerings put in by the rich did not affect their daily living. For all these, out of their abundance, have put in offerings for God. Jesus made a very general statement that included all the rich who gave here. For all these. This is, does not mean that there were no honest or dedicated rich men who loved God among them. Just, he's not focusing on that. This does not mean that God did not honor some of their giving. This means that all the rich in what they gave, it was part of their abundance. And the word abundance means excess or extra money. All of us understand what that is. When we first get married, man, we're scrimping and pinching for pennies. We have 
first and the second kid. And, you know, and you mommies, you know, you're pinching a penny so hard, Lincoln's eyeballs pop out. And, but you make it work. If you understand what I'm talking about, you are most blessed. Then you learn the meaning of life. If you have never had to struggle financially, you are a real pauper. <laughs> you really are, are poor. And by the way, don't waste those lessons. Pass them off to your children. Because now if you can give them everything, God help you if you do. You'll destroy them. Now, it did not affect their necessities such as food, clothing, and shelter. This was extra stuff. It did not prohibit them from buying anything they desired, even the things they didn't need. If they wanted them, they could get them. It was just extra stuff. Jesus uses the word offerings in the plural. These rich men did not just put in money in one coffer, but in various ones. Now, maybe one puts a whole bunch in all of them. And maybe he's standing off and watching another wealthy man and he only puts one coffer in and he goes, that tight one, I can't believe him. Because we're like, you know, people looking around and all that. Well, all of a sudden, here comes this poor widow and, and, and she puts in two mites. What is that? In comparison. But the way you and I see things is far different from the way God sees them. These rich were known for their benevolence, for the service of the temple, the luxury, all the service that went on. But notice also that Jesus knew that the two mites of the poor widow that she cast in was what she had to live for that day. While they're not being affected or ever will be at all, She's affected immediately. But she, out of her poverty, put in all the livelihood that she had. The woman stands in sharp contrast to all the rich by the word but. A contrast in conjunction. She was not rich. They were. She was not dressed in the best clothes. They were. She was trying to be inconspicuous. They were not. She was humble. They were not. And you can go on and on with the contrast. The woman, out of her condition of poverty, gave the little she could not afford to give. The word poverty means deficiency, lacking. The little she has still made the situation lacking to obtain the adequate needed things for that day. She was destitute. The two mites were her livelihood, bios, what it took to live to sustain life. Mark adds the word whole, all, every wit. She had nothing left. 
the very monetary exchange that she would have used to buy something to eat. You remember when God plagued um, the people for David's sin and the prophet Gad came to David and said to go to the uh, and erect an altar at the threshing floor of Aruna. And so as he went, Aruna saw the king coming and um, he made his petition what he wanted and he said, oh no, look, David, take Take the threshing floor, take the oxen, take everything. Don't, don't worry about it. Just, just take it, have it. And David said, no, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. Nor will I offer burnt offerings of the Lord Yahweh my God with that which costs me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. Simple principle. From the beginning, when Trudy and I were born again, God's just part of our life. If I only give to God when I feel like it, that'd be terrible. Or just when I have money. Again, those difficult times are the things that God proves himself and does so much. And it is an interesting correlation. And again, I, I never look at your offering. I, I don't know who gives, who doesn't give. But it is interesting that the people that have always come in for financial help, most of the time, not all the time, but the majority of the time. And they tell me that they go here. I call Mario. I say, Mario, tell me if they ever gave anything here. The majority of the time, though they say they do, they never have. It's always the people that are not faithful to God are the ones that have the greatest problems with money. You can't escape that. Jesus teaches us that he does not look at how much we give, but how much we keep. I would never make that observation. I would have never made that statement. Jesus did. Proverbs 3, 5 through 10 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding in all your ways acknowledge Him and He shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your eyes. Fear the Lord, depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bone. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruit of all your increase so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be overflowing with new wine. That's a promise and a principle that Again, we don't understand completely, but we certainly don't want to corrupt it and pervert it and say, if you give one, God will give you... We, that's, that's using carnal means. That's not what he's talking about. The word tithe means a tenth, and we usually use it synonymously with giving or the offering. But let's just say if a person made $1,000, a tithe would be $100. It would be difficult for them to live. Why would I want to lay down some legal amount or measure laying a burden on someone that perhaps I'm not even willing to live with my own hand? Now, if you take someone who's making 20 grand a week, two weeks, whatever, then, you know, a tithe would be, they wouldn't even miss it. 
So the important thing is that you honor the Lord from your heart. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil, not money in itself. Paul tells that to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.10. God would not want you to be a bad witness to the world. So you pay your bills. As a Christian, you should be the best creditor. Nobody should ever have to call you about your bills. Now you're coming out of the world. You've got some baggage. Fine. Get it cleared up. Get going. Get on track. But from that point on, as a Christian, you should never have people calling on you for bills. Do people have worse credit? Are you ready? Ministers and churches. Shame on them. Should never be. Live within your means, not beyond your means. Always put something away. Jesus made it clear that our allegiance to God should be at least equal to paying taxes. They asked him, and Jesus made it clear. He says, and he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and the things of God to the things that are God. Luke twenty twenty five. Not by compulsion, not by some pressure. Not, this is between you and God, not any man. And that's the way it should always be. Do not let pastors or evangelists put a guilt trip on you with such a heavy burden that they persuade you to make pledges and to sign, you know, I promise I'll give this and this amount, whatever. And then every month, here you are, you oh, I can't believe that. I hate doing this. Rip it out. The more you think about it, the more angry you get. Do yourself um, and God a favor. Next month, don't write that check because it's not doing you any good. Who are you giving it to? You made a pledge to man. You made you, you let man snooker you. <laughs> That's one of the things that I had against the Harvest Crusade. They get out there and they go, Now, this is my pen. Here's my checkbook. And, you know, I'm going to write mine now. You do the same and walk out. Why would you want to do that? Either God's in the work or it isn't. Which is it? Can't have both. Give as God has blessed you. The size is irrelevant. Give hilariously. As unto the Lord. In fact, you know, in that section of 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul uses the Macedonians as an example because they were such poverty. They were like this widow, destitute. All the wars went on in that territory, so they were devastated. And when he came and, um, and he told them about the Corinthians that they were going to do this for the poor saints of Jerusalem and everything, oh, Paul, here, take some of the impulses. No, 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 no. He said, Paul, don't dare do that to us. The Jewish brethren have given to us the gospel. We're saved, our Messiah. The least we can do is this, they said. Wow. And he uses the Macedonians. Out of their deep poverty and willingly, they went out of their way. And then he closes the whole section by leveling everybody. Because it's a matter of the ultimate perspective. 
He says, and after we get done doing whatever we do and we believe the Lord is directing us and we do it with a genuine heart and hilariously and as unto the Lord and we just worship, then he says, and thank be to God for his indescribable gift, his son. When you look at what God gave for us, ladies and gentlemen, I give crumbs, dirt cloths. It's a matter of perspective. Jesus is the secret admirer of our giving. There should be no one else. <laughs> and so, as the Lord Jesus observed people putting money into the treasury, these three incredible truths are given to us. Jesus is the secret observer of all giving. Jesus is the secret appraiser of our giving. And Jesus is the secret admirer of our giving. What a great text. Lord, thank you for your grace, which is so abundant towards us, Lord, and so incredibly sufficient for our lives in every way. Help us to love you, to just see you work, to just be in awe of you and no person, Lord. We thank you for just what you've given to us in this building, a location. And Lord, we just pray that it be used for your glory to just teach and to bring people to your uh, salvation of your Son. And Lord, we just worship you. As you're praying, if you're here, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. You might be over the internet. If you believe that Jesus is God who became man and died for your sins, then you need to understand that if you call upon Him, He will forgive you and make a new creature of you and give to you eternal life. It's by grace through faith, that not of yourself, it's a gift of God. And so it's called a prayer of repentance. This is your prayer to Him. And if you want to be born again, you say this to Him, not to us. And He's going to save you right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. Amen.